0: Well, good morning, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to stand up here this morning and to share a little bit about um, some thoughts leading into the Easter season. I'm excited to do it. It's a real privilege. It's a real joy. And as we begin the week that leads up to the greatest of all holidays, um, Friday we will celebrate the death of our Savior which seems a bit of an odd thing, or it would if we were not able to look forward to then the glory and the victory that is Easter Sunday when we celebrate our Messiah's victory over death once and for all. And traditionally, we gather on this Sunday before Easter weekend, and hopefully uh, we begin to allow God to turn our minds and our hearts toward the picture of the cross and ultimately the empty tomb. And so I, um, I hope that you've already had some opportunities to do that in uh, the days and weeks past, but my prayer is that uh, this morning will be uh, an entryway for you if you haven't. And so I want to do that um, through the lens of Philippians chapter 2, which Jeff read for us earlier. And for those that have been around Kishwaukee Bible Church For a time, uh, you know that we try to preach in an expository manner. And what I mean by that is simply that we walk through Scripture line by line. And along the way, we ask the Lord to reveal to us the meaning as the Scripture was written and as God originally intended it. And along the way, in order to try to to gather um, a better understanding of what the Scripture is saying, a, a, a preacher or a teacher tends to just offer illustrations and examples and, and bits of explanation uh, as to what the text is saying. And I, uh, I want to do it a little bit differently this morning. Because of where we're at in the season, looking forward to Easter weekend, I want to take examples from the life of Christ and actually the end of Christ's life on this earth. And so rather than me offering you my own stories and... Um, uh, and illustrations. I'm I'm simply going to turn us back to various snapshots of the life of Christ, and I'm going to take those out of the Gospel of John for simplicity's sake. And uh, my prayer is that uh, John will illuminate for us what this passage in Philippians means. And some may wonder, well, why Philippians? Kind of a random choice, it seems. For Palm Sunday, and uh, and actually, I don't think it is because I think it fits in the context of where Pastor Steve has taken us thus far. Um, you'll recall that as he's taken us through Acts, he's shown us how God, in His mercy, saved many, and yet also in His sovereign plan, allowed persecution to break out against those many, so that the gospel would go forward. You will recall the first martyr, Stephen, who was murdered by the same sorts of men who took the life of our Savior. And, and Stephen ultimately died at the foot of a young man named Saul. And if you fast forward 25, 30 years or so, young Saul has now grown to be old Paul. Um, His name was changed when he came face to face with that very living Jesus. He not only changed his name, but his entire way of being. His was not simply a testimony of God made my life better. His was a transfer at the deepest root. The fierce young persecutor of Christians, Saul, became... Paul, the zealous evangelist. But at the end of his life, Paul sits in a Roman prison or chained to a Roman guard. He'd become a prisoner for his faith just as the men and the women and the children that young Saul had dragged from their homes and put in prison. And as Paul sits in chains, waiting literally on death row, he writes a letter a letter to the church at Philippi, a church that he started years previously, and he writes to remind them, even as he sits in chains, to be joyful in Christ. And he, he writes to them, knowing the history of the persecution and the scattering of the believers, to say, be united in one mind, in that joy, And so just as God used the pain and suffering and ultimately the death of Stephen and other believers to drive the gospel out of Jerusalem, so God now uses the chains of Paul and his eminent execution to pen the words of the very scripture that will drive the gospel to us thousands of years later. And so I don't think this is um, random. I think this is a very appropriate way to look at What would God say to us? What would God say to us as we step outside of the book of Acts for just a brief time to consider our Savior's journey to the cross? And so, as we think about how we can be joyful in the midst of suffering, and how we can be united in one mind as of Christ, we'll dive into the story or the the letter of Philippians. And uh, as we do that, I just want to pray that God will... Be with us. And so, Father God, I would ask that you allow the presence of your spirit to work here in this place, even now, as we look into the scriptures. Father, I pray that whatever might come out of my mouth that is an error, you would simply cause it to fall on deaf ears. And Father, I pray that the truth of your gospel would shine forth and that you would, in this process, give us the mind of Jesus. Help us to see what that means. And help us to understand how we can unite around it. And Father, we pray that all this would glorify your name through Christ. Amen. So, we begin with Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, which says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so Paul starts by highlighting two threads that run throughout the book of Philippians. The first is joy, joy in the midst of suffering as he recalls his friends at Philippi. He encourages them to be joyful as they await news, as they await word of their friend's fate, as they reflect on what Jesus Christ has done to build that church. Second, Paul speaks of unity of those believers, and he speaks of how unified the Philippian believers have been, and how unified he prays that they will continue to be. He talks about being united in thought and in action and in love all around the gospel of Christ to have one mind, one thought. But why these two threads? Why does a man in chains say, be joyful? Why does a man who is separated from those he loves say, be united? In order to understand that, what I want to do is walk us through these 10 or 11 verses, but I want to do it slightly differently. As I said, I want to give you pictures from the gospel. And so I'm going to flip back and forth a little. Um, for those of you that like to read and follow along, the words of Philippians, God willing, will be on the screen behind me. Um, the words that I read from John, I'll just read to you. And if you want to follow along, you can open your own Bible to the Gospel of John and, and follow as I read. But I don't want you to be distracted by a lot of screen flipping or a lot of page flipping. So it's okay to just sit and listen. And, and that's fine. So... We will see some pictures, we will see the portrait of Christ fleshed out, and our first glimpse, our first snapshot comes to us from the 17th chapter of John. And in John 17, Jesus is praying. He's praying before he's arrested, before he's taken to the cross, and he's praying for, first of all, his apostles, and second of all, us. You may not understand, or you may not have known that Jesus actually prayed for you and me, specifically. In John seventeen twenty through 23, we read these words. Jesus is praying, and he says to God the Father, I do not ask for these only, that is his apostles who are around him, but God, I also ask for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Those who will believe through the word the apostles leave, that's us. And love them as you love me. Jesus' prayer is that all believers will become united together. And because of that unity, we will be a living testimony to the world. That Christ came. That he was obedient to God the Father who loved him. And that that love now lives and acts in us and through us. And Jesus prayer is that the lord or the world would see us united and wonder at what it is that binds us together so mysteriously. And now Paul writes to the church about unity and also about joy, knowing that Christ has prayed and that his goal for us is to show the love of God the Father. And going on in Philippians, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Sounds good. Be nice. Be humble. Think of others. But that's not all Paul is saying. Paul actually gives us an example himself, Paul doesn't say just to be nice and to think about others, but he says in 5 and 6, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the standard Paul lays out Verse 5 tells us the standard is Christ himself. Some translations will use the word attitude instead of mind. Some use different words. But what we're talking about is not simply an intellectual pursuit of saying think like Jesus. Or think about what Jesus would do. Paul is saying let your mind be transformed. Let your very heart and soul and being become like Christ. And so if we want to know what that model looks like, if we want to know what does it mean to be like Christ, we look to Him. And we see that Paul says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which is difficult for us to understand because we're not equal with God, though at times we'd like to be and even think we are. So, here come some snapshots of the life of Christ in his final days to help us understand what does it mean to be equal with God and yet to not consider equality with God something that we should pursue. And so, we look at John chapter 11, and this is a story that many of us are familiar with that Takes place in the the last part of Jesus' life, and it's actually one of the catalysts that will ultimately send him to the cross. But John chapter 11, starting in verse 38, records these words Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. This is the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And so John shows us a picture of Jesus approaching the tomb of Lazarus, a dead man. And Jesus has compassion on those who are near, but he has no fear. He has no hesitation. He has no second thoughts about why he's there. He's not despondent like the other mourners. Why? Because Jesus is himself God. In John's opening chapter of his gospel, he tells us that Jesus was the source of all creation and even the very source of life for every man. And now Jesus approaches the tomb of a dead man without a moment's hesitation and says, you will see the glory of God. And it is the glory of God demonstrated by giving a dead man life. Jesus knows this. He was God incarnate. And what does Paul say about this? That even though Jesus was God, and even though he knew full well who he was, he did not seek to be treated like God. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And we can see this perhaps best in the traditional Palm Sunday story. Jesus approaching the city of Jerusalem. We know that the narrative begins with shouts of Hosanna, but it does not stop there. We know that the people had expected Jesus, the King of Israel, to come into the city and overthrow those who oppressed them. But that was not Jesus' heart attitude. And John chapter 12 shows us this. In verse 12, it says, We see Jesus being praised and celebrated as he enters Jerusalem, rightfully so. But what is his response? Well, as he arrives, he begins to talk to his disciples. And he does not talk of the praise that the people are shouting, he does not talk of how worthy he is, God incarnate, to receive, although that is all true. He speaks of being lifted up in death. He speaks of being murdered, died. And even at this moment, when, when men offer him praise and when his, his earthly popularity is probably at its peak, Jesus turns and he points the people not to himself but to his heavenly father. And at the end of that entire story in John 12, we read this. Jesus cried out, and he said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is God. John tells us that many, many people were believing in him because he had raised a dead man to life. And yet, as, as Jesus enters the city and hears the praises of the people, praises that are due to God, Jesus says, I have come to show you the Father. And not only have I come to show you the Father, I've come to obey the Father. And everything that I say to you is given to me by the Father. Everything that I will do is commanded to me of the Father. Everything that you see, you see the Father. What does it mean to know that He's God and yet not to consider equality with God something to be grasped? Constantly pointing to God the Father. And these are the thoughts that Paul says should begin to unite us as followers of Christ. And then Paul adds to this. It's not enough to think about Jesus in the abstract and to say that, yes, our attitude should be like him, and yes, we should point people to the Father. Paul says we should look specifically at the acts that Jesus did as a servant, How far was Jesus willing to submit himself to the will of his Father in heaven? Paul, in verse 7, says of Jesus, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Taking the form of a servant. I think probably like Many of you, when I think Jesus the servant, especially on Palm Sunday, I think immediately of Jesus in the upper room. I think of Jesus before uh, his friends, his um, followers, his chosen few, sharing the Passover meal, the celebration of God's goodness to them, the grace and mercy that God has poured out in generations past. I think of Jesus stopping and doing something that no one would have expected. The story is recorded for us in John chapter 13 as John continues to progress from Jesus the life giver to Jesus the reflection of God's glory, Jesus the humble servant, and in John chapter 13 we read about Jesus the servant. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And down in verse 12, we read, When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And so in the matter of a few sentences, Jesus says, Yes, you call me Lord, for I am God. And yet, this is how I act to you as an example of how you should act to one another. I take off my outer garment. I put a towel around my waist. And as the lowliest of household servants... I wash your feet. And this is how you should act with one another. I'm sure there are countless sermons about this passage. It's a popular one. And I don't pretend to have terrific wisdom to add to what's already been said. But I, I, I read this story whenever I read it and I think I don't wash feet. I, it's just me. I don't. Dirty feet? should be washed by the one who made them dirty, not by me. (laughs) We have a mudroom in our home. We have a place where our children can stop and wash up their feet if necessary, and that would be good as long as I'm not the one doing it. And yet, Jesus says, this is an example. Not literally that we need to go around with a rag and a bucket But figuratively, that we need to be prepared to take the lowliest servant position when it's appropriate to say, this is the example that our Lord set for us, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so, he said, this is my example for you. This is the example that we're to follow. We good? All right. I told you, Lord willing, things will show up on the screen. I have no control. It's okay. Um, Now, we talk about servanthood, and you'll hear a lot of people talk about servant leadership, right? And that's fine. It's well and good to talk about servant leadership. That's a, a worthy thing. It's an entirely different thing to go where Paul goes next. Because Paul goes from Jesus' example as a servant to Jesus' example, as one who will give his very life for you and for me. Back into Philippians, chapter 2, verse 8, we see, And God says, through Paul, that Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Think about where we started our little story here. Paul set for us a standard by which we are to measure our hearts, a standard by which we are to measure our attitudes and conform our minds. This is the attitude we are to have in ourselves. Am I willing to humble myself to the point of denying myself, of serving those around me, Am I willing to give my life for someone who does not deserve it? That was me. Jesus gave his life for me, and I didn't deserve it. John captures this in his next snapshot. Just before Jesus leaves that upper room where he had taken the towel and washed his disciples' feet. Just before he heads off to what will be ultimately the end of his life. He has something to say. Knowing that he has less than 24 hours left to live. He says in John 14 starting in verse 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away. The ruler of this world is coming, Jesus says. And he has no claim on me. He has no ability to exert authority or superiority over Jesus. For Jesus is God. And yet Jesus says, God gave me a command. God said, to lay down your life for those that we will call and save and love. And so Jesus says, I will obey the command. And I will submit myself To Satan himself. For the good of those I love. And as John walks us through that process. He does not leave any room for doubt. Lest we think that somehow in these last hours. Perhaps Jesus has set aside his divinity. Perhaps Jesus is made weak. And made one who cannot help. But to submit himself. John gives us a glimpse of the, the amazing power that is held back somehow. John chapter 18 shows us when Jesus says that the ruler of this world is coming, this is what it looks like. When Satan, having entered Judas, delivers a crowd of soldiers and guards to the garden to arrest Jesus, something amazing happens. And so in John 18, we read this bit of story. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. In the face of armed soldiers, temple guards, men with weapons, dozens, if not perhaps more than a hundred, Standing, and one single, simple carpenter teacher says, I am. And the garrison falls. Make no mistake, Jesus retained his divinity to the end. And yet, in one Amazing display of humility. Jesus repeats the question Whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, Take me. And they do. And he allows himself to be bound, and he allows himself to be led away, and he allows himself to be paraded through a sham trial, to be convicted of false charges. To be treated as brutally as any criminal. We are to have the mind of Christ. What sort of humility does it take for the creator of the universe to become the creature who dies? What sort of humility does it take to stand silent as they hurl insults, lies, curses at an innocent man? What sort of humility does it take to let them... Nail a sign of mockery above your head as you cling to life breath by breath. Paul says, the sort of humility that Jesus displayed is the mind we should have in ourselves. And so at the end, John, in chapter 19 writes, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. A willing surrender To the death that would have been ours. And had that been the end of the story, we would be left in despair and in hopelessness. For we would serve a dead God. But we do not. We cannot possibly know how to measure up to the standard of that kind of humility. You and I are proud You and I are independent, sometimes fiercely so. We want our own way. We we can even be tempted in our own humility. I can think of times when I've seen someone I know stand and boast of something that I've thought, why would you brag about that? That's not worth boasting over. Only to be caught off guard thinking in my own heart, I'm glad I'm not as boastful as that guy. (laughs) How dare I be proud of my humility? (laughs) That's how frail and weak we creatures are. And so, if Christ had hung on the cross and the story had ended there, our own inability to transform our minds would be a hopeless, useless effort. Praise God, that is not the end of the story. You see, the story is the same one who took young Saul guarding the body of Stephen and transformed him into old man Paul who went from pulling men and women and children from their homes because of their faith to writing the defense of the faith that would become the very words of the Holy Scripture. That's the transformative power that we have in Christ. That's how the story goes on. As Jesus did not remain on the cross, he did not remain sealed in the tomb And old man Paul, even as he faces the end of his own life, chained to guards, says, that is where we derive our joy. That is where we as believers in Christ are united together in one mind. And Paul goes on, and he reminds us of the end of the story, even as we near the end of our little passage of this letter... In Philippians chapter two, verses 9 through 11, Paul says, "Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father." And John reminds us on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the first Easter Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. Jesus sends not out of death, but out of life. And so Paul says, be joyful. If you are in chains and if you are suffering, be joyful. If you are imprisoned and face death, be joyful. That was the mind of Christ. And Paul says... Do not seek your own way. Do not strive to lord it over others. Do not seek the position of God as the authority. But serve, humbling yourself, putting the needs of others before yourself. And by doing that, you will be united as brothers and sisters. And above all, God will be glorified. And people will see it. And they will know that we serve a risen Savior who came from a great and mighty God. Now, next week we'll come back and we will have more opportunity to celebrate this great truth of a risen Savior. And I pray that this week God will reveal to us new and wonderful ways that we should take joy in that story. But what do we do in the meantime? How do we take this exhortation from old man Paul that our heart attitude should be the same as Jesus' heart attitude? Well, let me offer you just a couple of thoughts as we close out the time that we have this morning. Just by way of suggestion. And first and foremost, I would pray that God would work on your hearts as he's worked on mine these last couple of weeks to show you where you need to approach the throne of grace in all of this. So first, by way of application, let me tell you what we must not do. We must not allow ourselves to despair over the fact that Paul has set for us a standard that seems unattainable. It would be easy for us to sit here in this room and say, I can't. It's beyond me. It's hopeless. We cannot claim to be as humble and servant-hearted as Jesus Himself. But know that Jesus said, I send you. And Jesus promised that after Him would come one who would allow us to do things above and beyond even what He displayed while He was on earth. Part of knowing Jesus Christ is knowing that we have traded our selfish unrighteous, incapable selves for a new heart, a new mind, holy, righteous, pure, eternal because of the resurrected King of the universe. And so, I would caution you, don't despair at the bar that is set before us, but glory in what Christ has done to allow us to accomplish much And then trust in his ability. Second, closely related to the first, perhaps you don't even know of the power of the resurrection. Perhaps you sit here and you don't even know where you stand with this king of the universe. You need to. And so just a word to those of you that sit here and hear the words of Scripture read and think that The story of Jesus is an amazing story. You must know it's not an amazing story. You must know that you must come to grips with the story in your own life. Come to Christ. Come to Him for forgiveness. Come to Him because you are incapable of doing these things on your own. And if you do not know what unites us, then celebrate Easter Sunday, next Sunday, as a new recreated living being who was once dead by coming to Christ. And then finally, I would say that even though Paul has set for us an amazing standard, we must continue to strive. And it would be It would be easy for us to sit in despair of the standard, but it would be equally as easy for us to sit and say, well, if God is going to do the work, then I'll just sit and wait for it to happen. And that's not how Scripture works. You see, there's this mystery to the way that we've been saved where Paul says to us, God will work in you according to his good purpose. And at the same time, Paul says to us, we have a race to run. And you don't run sitting on the part of you that can't run. And so we must strive. We must call out to God and we must search out where in my life am I not humble? Where in my life am I not joyful? Where in my life have I built walls between me and my brother or my sister? God, show them to me and allow me to break down the walls, to celebrate in joy, to humble myself. We must constantly measure our own hearts against the standard of Christ And we must constantly fall on our knees before Him, confess our inability and trust in His complete, accomplished, finished work on our behalf. And by having this mind, the mind of Christ, as we become more and more united, and as we celebrate the incomparable joy of knowing Him, we reflect the very glory of God the Father to those around us. Father, would you make us polished mirrors of your glory? Sharpen and focus us, God. Would you allow us to unite together in this wonderful message of the Savior? And would that message bring joy to our hearts every day this week as we look forward to the celebration of the cross and the empty tomb next week? And Father, would you allow us to know the resurrection power at work in us to work Your purpose for Your glory in Your name's sake. And we together pray this prayer united under Christ. Amen.